But even just like John said, calling them like popcorn fodder, like, oh man, I want to be the popcorn fodder. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Hauntsville Cryptcast. I'm Anthony. I'm Doza. I'm Anna. And I'm John from Moonlight Mad Reviews over on Instagram. Alright, everybody, spit in my mouth and drag me screaming, because that's the only way you're going to get me to watch another one of these movies. Today, we're talking about The Conjuring. <laughs> <laughs> I love that's wonderful. Now, for most of us, I think we saw these in order of release. I know... Uh, John Doza and I have seen most of them as they were coming out into theaters. But Anna, this was her first watch of any Conjuring I was film. forced to watch them after years of, of avoiding them for a reason. And then I, we decided to do this episode and I was like, okay, I have to be forced to, to watch them. And to be fair, I shouldn't criticize the franchise about watching them. And now I can because I've watched them. <laughs> <laughs> And we watch them in chronological order, which yeah. I think is a pretty generous handicap because hindsight is twenty twenty, and they still manage to contradict themselves. It made it easier to see the flaws in continuity. It was like, hey, wait a minute. We literally just left off this film where this happened, and now you're telling me that never happened. And so I think if I'd watched it in the order they came out, you know, with enough space in between, I may have forgotten that completely contradicts something that happened in the first place. Every 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 one of the movies contradicts the other ones, basically. There's enough instances of, you know, living in Retcon City where they decide, okay, no, we're going to make a connection for this now because we've decided it's going to be a shared universe. So we have to make sure that everything does actually connect. And once you start forcing things like that that haven't been planned out before, you can see how sloppy it is then it just seems, you know, it seems cheesy. It seems forced. And it's just make things good. Just give us one good thing enough to demand another good thing. And if you're not giving us good things, stop. Well, they seem to be convinced that the doll was the best thing of the franchise because they just kept trying to ram her into every single story. And it's like the, the doll's one of the least interesting things about the whole franchise, but they, they decided that was the best thing. They want Annabelle to be important so badly. She's one of the the most like famous instances of like a a haunted object like that the the masses know about. It was huge in the seventies, and if they're trying, they're like leaning into the the seventies time period with the Warrens and like their whole bullshit. So they're trying to make it about Annabelle, and it's just you know they it feels like they're just throwing Annabelle at the wall and hoping eventually she'll stick. And then and naming three characters Annabelle, and then and then deciding that each of them are the doll. But then, really, really, <laughs> the doll's not Annabelle. And ugh, I don't know. I think once you once you see where they're coming from with Annabelle, and obviously Annabelle's our first introduction. You know, within within the first movie, if you're watching them in order of release, she's the first thing we meet. And Annabelle herself is not scary. In fact, the redesign that they came up with for the movie is less scary because she's trying to look sinister. She's trying to look off-putting and she's just not. She's really not that creepy. I think the parts when 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 she does work, it's when we can see what's manipulating her, which to me is far more interesting than just the doll falling off a shelf 
or books falling off a bookshelf and, you know, just almost clobbering a baby. Oh, you mean the sexy Brendan Urie demon from Emperor's New Clothes? (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) He he had to show me the video for this reference. (laughs) Did Brendan Urie talking about? Is that what you're saying? Brendan Urie played a the, demon. There's, there's a video where he's a demon. He had to show me this because I was like, what are you talking about? It's it's a good video. It's a great music video. It's a great song. <laughs> They've got Brendan Urie in like full prosthetics and the demon that is manipulating Annabelle just looks like sexy Brendan Urie demon. <laughs> it's just like generic thin horn demon. Yeah, pretty much. I gotta look oh this up yeah, now. it it really is exactly that. I don't. I think Annabelle appeared first. I can't remember, but also that's potentially not the case because we don't see the Annabelle demon until. <laughs> oh, that's Annabelle. <laughs> yeah. Are we talking about the movies in chronological order then? I think that's the easiest way to do this now that we kind of have the timeline because I sure as shit don't remember release order. The Annabelle movies came out in no sequence at all. In which case, are we starting with The Nun? I'm down to start with The Nun. I've got a pretty hot take on this one. <laughs> I I liked The Nun for one thing, and it's having the Farmiga sisters perform together. Yes. And yet separate and yes, I- <laughs> inconsequentially. Because like, they could have like hired another actor to portray her when she was younger, but I was just like, hey, they, they did a funny thing where they got the two sisters together. Cool. But it doesn't go any further than that for me. I wouldn't mind that, though, because Vera Farmiga has never given a disappointing performance in her life. And I love Thaisa Farmiga, especially like totally won me over in We Have Always Lived in the Castle, most faithful adaptation adaptation of a Shirley Jackson film. But that's the thing is that at the end of the movie, you wind up finding out that they, in fact, are not playing the younger or older versions of themselves. They just went, you see what we did there? They kind of <laughs> look like one another. They got the same last name. But guess what? This was all for nothing. And again, another instance of of them just forcing a big old retcon in there where they're like, hmm, all right, remember that scene? Yeah, that scene. Here's how that happened. Again, going back to the hindsight thing, they could have really used this. They could have used the nun to tie together why the nun is stalking Vera Farmiga. Because instead of doing this bullshit, somehow Frenchie is possessed at the end, which makes no sense because then the nun is in two places at once. It's like, okay, so as far as the Conjuring one goes, they do this exorcism to get the the nun out of Frenchie and then it stalks Lorraine Warren. But if they just did like, oh, like, you know, this is a bloodline thing, like you're related to this nun... That would have been so much more interesting. The thing with the nun is, and actually Steve Kostansky mentioned this, when you have a really great character and a really great character design, you don't necessarily have to give us a whole entire movie about it. <laughs> because the nun, yeah. the nun does have a creepy look. I think her character design is cool. It's interesting. It's one of those things that stands out and she's memorable. Um, but I didn't need a whole entire movie. You could have given me the the intro, the, the, you know, their their cold open, and yeah. that would have been great. That would have been great, and just you know, have Taisa fighting her off. Just condense the very beginning of the movie and the very end of the movie, and make it a bloodline thing, so that we know why she's stalking Lorraine. 
And that would have been fantastic. I would have appreciated that if they decided, you know what, we're going to create a shared universe as webisodes or maybe as Netflix originals and it's just like short 10 minute bites. That would have been great, but they forced it out into a, what is it, almost a two hour runtime or, or is that the I only think it's like about sexy 90 minutes? That definitely would have been an interesting means of telling this story as opposed to giving us an entire film. However, I say that, but my hot take is I actually enjoy The Nun. It's probably one of the most enjoyable movies in this franchise. One, it's beautiful. I love the way that they went into detail on creating the Abbey, on choosing the locations, on creating this sprawling cemetery. I I felt like somebody actually gave a shit when they were making this one. The story is, is not the best, and it suffers from a lot of logical flaws, but... I felt like I was watching a classic 70s hammer horror film, especially with how rich the color scheme was for this one and the focus on some of the shots that they were taking and And the campiness and the campiness. Mm. It definitely felt very 70s hammer. So this was the first one that I watched, obviously, in the franchise. And I kept thinking this boring, the story is like boring as hell, but it will probably come up and, you know, tie into the franchise later on. And I'll go, Ooh, okay. But okay. no, it just, it literally never came up. And it was, I just feel like the whole franchise could literally would have been the same franchise if they hadn't had the nun. Like she didn't add anything to the films at all. And the backstory made no sense tying in the rest of the universe like you guys are saying yeah it looked good it did seem especially after seeing all of them now someone gave a shit about that one whereas most of this franchise they were really really sloppy and no one really gave a shit they were just like oh we're gonna make money it doesn't really matter what we put on screen there was a few things that really bothered me about it choice of angles and shots really bothered me a lot they were just randomly the dutch angle Dutch angle, Aww. fuck off. The thing is, like, I understand why the Dutch angle exists and used correctly. Fine. Makes sense. This was just chucked in there. And that's what I hate about it is that it's chucked in there. And it's like, well, this isn't doing anything. This is it. This literally doesn't belong here. You've just gone, I'm a director. I know what a Dutch angle is. I may as well put one in rather than going, oh, this movie would be improved atmospherically if i use this and it yeah, was should just I do chucked the Dutch in angle there also this was than, can i yeah exactly yeah. this was my first introduction of the spinning crosses in the franchise which is one of like my pet peeves of the whole franchise it's like oh something evil's about to happen we better spin this cross on the wall <laughs> and spin across spit in my mouth yeah they spit in a lot of mouth oh my god wait there's a fetish for it i looked it up oh great <laughs> Yeah, I had one fact-checking issue in this one. I have a lot of fact-checking issues when it comes to this franchise, so I apologize. But my one fact-checking issue with this one is that they claimed that it was a Romanian tradition to cover mirrors and have bells in the graves. It's actually a Victorian London tradition that was then spread across Europe. So, I mean, no one did their homework on England in general in this franchise, and... That's such a cool history and tradition. Like, I just wish they would have done something with it rather than just gone, oh, yeah, there's a bell on that grave. It's tradition. <laughs> like, okay, mate, like... That's a great set piece. And I, I agree with you guys that the movie does look great. And you can tell where the budget went 
they they had a smaller budget on this and it's actually i think still the highest grossing movie out of the entire franchise but yeah the visuals are great and that's what's so disappointing about it when you sit through that movie and you're going what did any of this do this didn't build on anything it hardly gave us a story within itself like i said that that set piece with the uh with the bells with the grave it's great but like with a lot of these movies it just feels like they went i've got an idea for this really cool five minute scene let's just now we've got 20 of those let's string them all together and try and tie a loose thread of a story in here to put out a movie it gets old if you're watching it in chronological order, you see that this movie really sets up the formula for the look over there. Oh, I think I saw something. Well, nope. Look back. Mm-hmm. Wait, is something. it there? <laughs> no, I'm going to look back at the mirror again. And now it's in my face. And that's when it will proceed to spit in your mouth and drag you on the floor. Also, why were there two nuns just for the sake of a jump scare? That made double, no sense at nun. all. It was like, yeah. oh, here, oh, we're watching the nun. Oh, here's another nun. You've never heard of the one-two nun punch? That's how they get you. A lot like raptors, the attack comes from the sides. It's the one that's in front <laughs> of you that's distracting you. And then they come in from the sides. And it's most likely that they, you will still be alive when they start eating you. <laughs> Wait, John, is this true? <laughs> yeah, nuns. <laughs> yes. Veloci nuns. Well, they have the Velocipaster. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm going to pitch that to Brandon as a sequel. (laughs) But, like, is that why, like, they made this one canonically, the first one chronologically, because it has no impact throughout the timeline? Like, so you can just, like, take it and remove it and just leave people going, yo, what the fuck was up with that nun through all the rest of these movies? Do you really care watching the rest of the movies, like, who the nun is? You're just like, oh, spooky ghost, cool. Yeah, spooky nun. And they get rid of her in two minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It has no impact on Ed and Lorraine. It has no impact on the stories of any of the future films. She just is present and we're supposed to like sympathize with Lorraine because this is a personal haunting. Meanwhile, I don't know if they realize this, but Ed and Lorraine are the least interesting characters in this entire franchise. (laughs) And yeah, they're the, not very good people in real life. Yeah, I'll get, I'll get to that. 100%. But, yeah. <laughs> but if we're looking at just the, the, the Conjuring universe, Ed and Lorraine, the, the movies start to suffer once they think Ed and Lorraine are the main characters. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can talk about it when we get into the first one, but you feel so much for the parents. And you like them. You actually like them, and yeah. you feel bad seeing what they're going through. And Ed and Lorraine come in as, like, a lot like The Exorcist. <laughs> they come in towards the end, or towards the middle in this one, and they they don't focus on them too much. They focus on them just enough to be like, oh, okay, cool. They're going to come in and be the Avengers of this movie and help us tie things up. Whereas in the other movies, they they force Ed and Lorraine as the main characters. And that's where everything really starts to suffer. It, myself included. <laughs> <laughs> what was after The Nun? Even with The Nun, just real quick, mm. because that, as far as research has gone, is the only original, not based off of a Warren's case, film that exists in this franchise. Were they trying to make a Crooked Man movie? Yes. Yes, they were. Are they not anymore? 
I, I don't know. What what anybody know what happened with that? I believe it's been shelved after the reception of La Llorona. Ah, oh, very Which nice. Which they very quickly were like, oh, uh, forget it. It's not actually the darkest chapter in the Conjuring universe. <laughs> yeah, I think they have a contract for like 13 films and we're only eight deep. When you're only eight deep and you know it's 13, it's a terrible thing. <laughs> <laughs> Especially because like, they're going to find a way to shoehorn the Warrens into a bunch of stuff that they have no business being a part of. You mean like well, they've that's, already done? That's their real life. <laughs> but, it, <laughs> but it's just like it's they're they're running out of like high profile Warrens cases. Like we pretty much did all of the, that's the quote, quite, good unfortunately, ones. Unfortunately, we're probably going to get a full length feature of Amityville. So it's the only one I don't think touch so. on that much. I don't know. To be fair. Amityville is the only film that I can think of that I would say we still need a remake. After two remakes, we still need a remake of Amityville because it's still not good. Like, there has not been a good version of Amityville. But I also don't think that this franchise can do a good job of that, so (laughs) they might as well try. I mean, (laughs) growing up on Long Island, Amityville as a story just also isn't great Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's not what everybody wants to make it out to be in truth or in fiction it's just it's very muddled folklore and i think everybody around here is tired of it so much so that the the owners have consistently changed the house's appearance and street numbers so that people can't find it (laughs) oh well we know try as they might i found we do but that's because you live (laughs) in amityville (laughs) Yeah. What's my excuse? I grew up in Queens and I was like, oh man, I love this movie. I'm driving out there. I'm taking my, my then girlfriend, <laughs> now, now wife. And she's like, I refuse. I refuse. Why are you driving me here? Aww. Michelle was convinced we were going to be haunted afterwards. All right. So what, what's next? What's something, what's something good? There's nothing good. A- I think Annabelle is next. Annabelle creation, Annabelle creation is next. All, all. So, so I, I have the backstory of Annabelle. Good. So the actual story in 1968. The Warrens were called to collect a Raggedy Ann doll, which is what she is for anyone who doesn't know. She doesn't look like the doll in the movies. She's just a Raggedy Ann doll. So they went to collect the Raggedy Ann doll from two roommates who claimed that it was haunted by a girl called Annabelle Higgins, which is what they show in the movie. They then locked it in a case in their museum. And that's the end of the story. Nothing has happened since. And there has been no evidence that this doll was haunted or done anything beforehand. She did uh, escape yeah. slash get lost by TSA. <laughs> oh, oh God, no. <laughs> That was during the runs of The Conjuring when they were doing, like, the mobile tour yeah. thing, right? I believe so, yeah. yeah. That That's the most that's ever happened with the doll. Yeah, so that's yeah. all the Annabelle's covered. It's, it's based on the true story of a doll existing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that, that, that's it. And not even that doll, just a doll. And that's the cool thing with the Warrens lore if we go simply by what they say the lore is how haunted this doll is and all of that and if you hear it from a friend of a friend of a friend on the schoolyard you're you're gonna be freaked out you're gonna see a raggedy ann doll and you're just gonna flip out right if you're a kid or whatever but as a movie once you start stretching it out and again trying to make her look way more sinister than she is that's where where things fail we do get a cool little shout out to the Raggedy Ann doll at the end of Annabelle Creation. I did love that moment yeah. because I, w- I mean, I'm sure it's just licensing and rights and stuff like that, right? They, they It would have been difficult for them to actually use the Raggedy Ann doll. Um, I don't think so. I think this I was think a they choice. literally just wanted it to be mm. more spooky because most people who see 
that Annabelle is just a Raggedy Ann doll. Like, oh, is that it? Yeah. So, well, I mean, if we look at, and, and this is my opinion, but if we compare original trilogy Chucky to after Bride of Chucky with the staples, original, in my opinion, is better. He's creepier looking. Yeah. Because it's just that, like, regular good guy doll. You know, and that's I, that I think is scarier. Something that doesn't seem overtly threatening. Yeah, but at least Chucky earned his staples. <laughs> yes, he did. Yes, he did. But as soon as he got the staples, he got the films got ridiculous and not yeah. scary. So also, he's just kind of equated with ridiculous Chucky. After that. <laughs> but when we see Annabelle, even for the first time, if you're watching in uh, order of release, when they show her in The Conjuring, but anytime we see the doll in like a present tense she's got like a gouge in her eye she's uh, like faded she's scratched up we never see the annabelle doll sustain any of these injuries so that's purely just to be like this is a creepy doll to the point where like in the first time that we see annabelle in the conjuring uh she's like a just sort of like it looks like a prototype plastic doll <laughs> Then I think in Annabelle comes, no, in Annabelle, just Annabelle, in Annabelle, I think she's a ventriloquist dummy. And then in- And she's got one eye that's like shadowed out a little bit in Annabelle. Like, yeah, it's, it's milky. Yeah. And then they change her eye color from that like milky to like green to blue throughout each of these movies there's no real consistency in the doll itself i'm all for like upgrading your props when you've got more of a budget and i know that they initially with the conjuring didn't plan on it being like the annabelle story so the first one looks like a prototype but i don't know seeing the ventriloquist dummy seeing the uh, annabelle creation doll it's just we're not watching the same doll anymore if you're watching these in order or back to back Especially in Comes Home, because she's had a whole completely different paint job. Because people probably wouldn't notice that if they're watching them, obviously, when they came out. But because I'd obviously just watched, like, Annabelle and Annabelle Creation, and I was like, hey, wait a minute, that's a different doll. Hey, wait a minute, she's had a complete makeover in Comes Home. How does that happen? They took her to the uh, little old man from Toy Story 2. Yeah. And That's he what I was did her makeup. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see that crossover. That'd they just cute. got a priest behind him continuously <laughs> blessing him. I do think Annabelle Creation is one of the stronger films in the series. David F. Sandberg, who, not to be confused with David Sandberg of Kung Fury fame. That's a great movie. <laughs> I think he did a great job with that. It's tense. It is, I'd say, more of a gateway horror. And it actually happens to be one of the only movies in the entire Conjuring universe that has some overt gore and some real brutal deaths in it. He wasn't really afraid to to kind of take it there. And the story around trying to tie Annabelle the doll in with Annabelle Higgins, who ends up killing her parents at the beginning of the first Annabelle solo movie. And at the end of Yeah, that's creation. a little forced. And at the end of creation, it's it's like giving us that little flashback that does seem a little forced but i i, I love uh sister charlotte the main two kids in annabelle creation were amazing they're yeah. such good actors like especially actually both of them are just really good like the one that eventually turns out to be annabelle in the end which is fucking just confusing <laughs> mm-hmm. uh she was a fantastic actress and her friend who was like 
one of the most kick-ass final girls ever was amazing. Lulu Wilson's been in a bunch of stuff. She's great. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, that's the thing. With all of these films, I cannot fault the acting in, in most of these. Like, they... Yeah. The performances are amazing, given what they've got, especially. M- my first note on this while I was watching it was, this is basically Pet Cemetery. Um, <laughs> and, oh, and oh god, that stupid demon voice again. Also, I I had a problem with the fact that there's, like, this... They made the closet so that it was made to, like, bind the Annabelle doll, right? They, like, lined it with right. Bible pages and stuff so mm-hmm. that it would bind her. But at the end of the film, she chooses... She chooses somehow to go back into that by herself and just sit and wait there. And and I didn't understand why this, like, demonic doll would go, all right, I'm going to go back into that binding closet again and just wait until <laughs> someone gets me out again. <laughs> I thought the, the nun, the sister, puts her in there. They decide, like, they've got to somehow get her back into the closet. So I think they throw the Annabelle doll in. And then Janice, the little girl who's possessed by the Annabelle demon, runs in after. But to that point, if you're bound by these Bible passages, you just decide, oh, I'm just going to burrow through. Like the demon easily could have done that himself as well, I guess. It's one of those things where it's like the rules matter until they don't. There are no rules in the Conjuring franchise, and that is one of my notes, because obviously the (laughs) nun doesn't abide by any rules, Annabelle doesn't abide by any rules, Annabelle isn't captured or imprisoned, and I don't know if they were trying to play it off like, oh, she's been pretending to be imprisoned, but still has this full autonomy, it doesn't play off well. Yeah, that's the thing, where it's like, it's not even that there aren't any rules, it's like they establish rules, and then immediately contradict their own rules, even within the same film, and especially from film to film, where they're just like, oh, I have a great idea, or I have a great idea, and nobody had the wherewithal to look back and be like, all right, well, what can and can't this doll do? And it's like, oh, the Bible thing is she can't do the, the pages. My bad, my bad. Let's write a better scene. But also, who is this doll? Because they, they, no, but they have the little girl <laughs> who dies, and they're like, yeah, that was Annabelle. And it's like, oh, okay, so that's Annabelle, and that's in the doll now. And then they're like, oh, yeah, but then here's this other girl that we're going to possess, and then she's going to be called Annabelle at the end, even though the whole way through the movie she had a different name. Now she's Annabelle Higgins. And we're like, okay, so it's that Annabelle. And they're like, no, 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 but it's a demon inside the doll. It's not actually any of these Annabelles. And you're like, so Annabelle does- isn't important to this story at all. All right, hang on. Let me get my Annabelle pie chart. Over here is where Annabelle is Annabelle. (laughs) Yeah, so Doze is right now motioning towards a pin board with a bunch of pins and strings and newspaper clippings. I I, I cracked the code. I know who's Annabelle and when. So you're Annabelle. He's Annabelle. At the very least, they keep trying to say the doll isn't possessed. The doll is a conduit. Why the doll needs to be a conduit in the first place is beyond me, because no other ghost in the Conjuring universe really needs a conduit to be either that powerful or even more powerful than Annabelle. So we're supposed to get that, like, okay, this family tried to resurrect their dead daughter in this doll, and a demon answered instead. Point being, the demon answered instead, but the spirit of their daughter is still hanging around because we do see both of them. Either that or the demon is, again, not bound by being in one place just like the nun, the demon is two visages at the same time, and we see both the girl and the demon. 
So I get that the demon is attached to the doll. It's the demon's favorite doll. You can't take it away from it. Everywhere that the doll goes, the demon goes. When it comes to the possession and then Annabelle Higgins and then being like the blood passage into the doll, that's where we really start to fall apart because then none of that matters. Like Annabelle didn't even have to die. There was no reason for Annabelle to be searching for the doll beyond like this is the demon's favorite doll i went into rewatching these to kind of say like okay did i really like these or was it just because i saw a horror movie in a theater and i've always got a soft spot for seeing movies in a, in a movie theater so rewatching annabelle oh man i did not remember how boring that movie was i enjoyed annabelle when i saw it in theaters mostly because i liked the now I can only think of him as the Brendan Urie demon. <laughs> but I do like the, what is it, a goat or like a satyr, right? I love the shot where Annabelle rises. And again, Annabelle's not that creepy on her own. But you see her on the floor and we just get that little sneak right behind her. And we kind of see him just off to the side. I love that shot. And I think in my mind, I was like, wow, that movie was excellent just because of that shot. <laughs> Rewatching it, I was like, god damn, this is boring. But again, that's, I think the most interesting parts of Annabelle is when we realize that it's the demon that is manipulating Annabelle. That's what's always made her creepy. In the first movie, the scene where she turns around, she's not turning around herself. It's Bathsheba that's making her turn around. So yeah, they just, they, they make a bunch of rules. They break all of them. They break our hearts. Wait. Yeah. Bathsheba was the witch in The Conjuring. Mm hmm. I don't remember Bathsheba. Right, 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 right. Never mind. When they're in uh, the daughter's room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the doll is again nothing. And yeah. the demon <laughs> is just like, you can play with my toy for a little while. Aww. Sharing is caring. Yeah. And that's what the conjuring is really about the heart. Demon and witch solidarity. It's <laughs> I just, what we're here for. As much as like, there are, there are some points to Annabelle creation where like, yeah, this could have been a really good movie. And like, when they give us, was it Janice and Linda? They've got a great dynamic and the two of them do a great job of giving you something to care about. I just wish that they gave us any more character development beyond, yes, Janice. What does she have? Polio. She, Janice, she had beyond, polio. Yeah, Janice has polio. It's kind of like the, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Anyone only ever gets two character traits and then we yes. move on. She has asthma and is good at math. She likes working out and is afraid of bugs. <laughs> Janice has polio and doesn't want to become a demon, but gets her mouth spit in. Yeah, you get you get your elevator pitch and you're just like, all right, here, here are the main characters. Look at that. Can I have money, please, for my movie? <laughs> but like, I, I do agree. John, you said that this is one of one of the stronger films in the franchise because it's it's a character driven film that isn't about the Warrens as characters. Mm -hmm. And so they give you the opportunity to like look at like this ensemble of interesting characters like oh my god like this is uh, a guy that's opening up his home to a bunch of young orphans and a nun yeah and i was like that that rocks and then something terrible is happening to them and i was i was engaged for that and like god fuck if the warrens had walked in at any point i would have just <laughs> been like laying back in my chair like of course they're fucking here great <laughs> now how are you gonna make this worse for me yeah <laughs> I, I love that because it's it's when you're driving the movie with characters, obviously, it sounds stupid saying it. But yes, if you've got good characters, we're going to care. We're going to be engaged and we're going to want to see more. 
And the fact that he is like, yeah, I thought I was going to get my little girl back and that's all we ever wanted. And lo and behold, this demon comes and swoops in is like, surprise, I'm here instead. And he's like, maybe I can make penance by bringing in these orphans. Yeah. Yeah, but also, like, he acts super creepy throughout the film until we know that. And then it's like, if you have this big secret hiding and you don't want people to get this doll out, then, like, why did you invite all these people into your home and be like, yeah, kids, there's a secret room with this, like, doll in it? And just don't touch it. Yeah, you can't tell a kid, like, not to do something. Like, do not play with this doll. And it's like, we're children and all we have is doll? Yeah. (laughs) I don't want to touch that fucking doll. Yeah. See, but, like, on that note, if... He's been acting creepy this whole time, and we see that he's actively, like, luring young girls into this house, whether it's through this, like, program that he's a part of or any other means. I really thought that they were going to lean into that and be like, yes, he's trying to find a suitable sacrifice for the doll so he can have his daughter back. Mm-hmm. In, like, a fucking hum- twist and a half. That would have been a great yeah. movie. But no, and he's just like, oh, it it was an accident. Please snap my neck. <laughs> Heart of gold, neck of glass. <laughs> what do we have up next? Annabelle. The old Conjuring We're still universe. talking about Annabelle. <laughs> we um, haven't even gotten to the Conjuring. I know. Well, um, we kind of covered Annabelle with that one, too. Yeah, We're I mean. We're not in the 70s yet. I've given the backstory for Annabelle, which covers this film, too, obviously. Oh, right. Okay. So there's, there's a lot of things, especially coming after creation, <laughs> watching this straight after, because I watched, we watched it in the same day as well as like Annabelle creation, and Annabelle was a bad day. So this lady who gets Annabelle at the beginning of the film is like, oh, yay, you got my favorite collectible doll, and then shows a shelf of dolls that look nothing like Annabelle in any single way, but are supposedly by the same person, even though we see the person who made Annabelle stop making dolls after they made Annabelle. Because their kid died. Anyway. Um, and they labeled she's... the box number one. Yeah, this exactly. the only one that's existed. And she's like, I've wanted this doll forever. And it's like, well, how have you seen this doll? It's not a fit. Anyway, she got the doll. And then we're told that, like, Annabelle Higgins joined the Manson cult so she could basically track down her doll again. The Manson and... cult was a misdirect. She just joined a different cult because it's cult fever in the 70s. Yeah, but, like, she's a demon. Start your own cult. Like, I don't get it. Um, but then, like, the, the, detec- the detective's like, oh, yeah, she wanted to summon, de- summon a demon. And it's like, yeah, but she is a demon. Why would she summon herself? We, I I just, I don't know. I don't get that's, it. That's a fault of, I think, just watching them in chronological order. Because yeah. Annabelle Creation came afterwards. We didn't know that she was actually the demon until until that movie. Yeah, but you think so one again, of them would rewatch City. Annabelle and be like, oh, for continuity, let's not, you know, mm-hmm. mess up this. Yeah. Story. But, but none of them did Tell that. Tell a different they just story. Went... Tell a story that fits together. Hindsight is twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, in my notes, it says, right, this one's trying to be Rosemary's baby. 100%, yeah. Uh, especially as right they called the, the main character Mia as well, as in mm-hmm. Mia Farrow. I'm like, okay, so they were trying to be my- Rosemary's baby. Fair enough. <laughs> Yeah, they had a couple instances of it. I mean, she plays a character named Mia, obviously shouting out Mia Farrow. She herself is named Annabelle, the actress. Forget her uh, last name. But she's whoa. also in Peaky Blinders and was my least favorite character in that, too. <laughs> <Whoops>. <laughs> and in this one, Annabelle is two creepy kids. And neither one of those kids is the original Annabelle. 
They're just two kids that she meets on the stairs. <laughs> I don't have a lot of notes for this one because I just got really bored of Annabelle. Um, yeah, it was really unremarkable. Yeah, and th- it had the the most I think like um like fan base hype about it. They're like, oh, we're gonna get the Annabelle movie. We're finally getting the Annabelle movie, and then they just gave us something like sort of generic that felt like very familiar. Where it's hitting all of these like same horror beats that they feel like they're supposed to be hitting. Like I felt like they were going down a checklist of like things we gotta do to make a horror movie, and then they just pushed it out. Well, I mean, they're all clearly beat for beat taken from other stories. Like, The Nun is a classic Hammer piece. Annabelle Creation is Pet Cemetery down to the story beats. Annabelle is Rosemary's Baby. The Conjuring is Poltergeist, whether y'all want to admit it or not. They're all (laughs) just other movies. I know I said that The Nun... Uh, is the one that felt like somebody gave the most shit, but I think that undermines the actual time, work, effort, and energy that the set design team put into every one of these movies. Costumes set is definitely on point because all of these are period pieces. So definitely impressed with that. The aesthetic is good. I think where I get hung up with the Conjuring franchises, for all intents and purposes, on a technical basis, they're not bad films. They hit the story beats of other good, famous horror films. They look really good. They just get too caught up in themselves where they're not doing things to actively scare you, where they're not doing anything nuanced, where they're not enjoyable films. Because I keep saying that the Conjuring franchise is like the basic bitch of horror, then like, (laughs) it, it is like, you know, they made pumpkin spice. And then everyone was like, yeah, I'm going to get pumpkin spice latte every autumn. And then people were like, oh, hey, people like pumpkin spice. Let's make it into cookies and let's put it into cakes and let's make vape juice. This pumpkin spice flavored. Like, they don't care if it tastes good or not, but they know people will buy it because it's got pumpkin spice in it. So they just chuck it in there. And that's basically what the franchise become. They were like, well, everyone likes this creepy doll. If I just put the name Annabelle on a movie, it doesn't really care if it's good or not. Like, I'm going to make money off it because people are going to go, oh, yeah, I want to buy it because it's Annabelle. They didn't care with most of these movies, to be honest. Apart from The Conjuring and The Nun, they didn't really put any effort into anything because they knew because of the title, people were going to watch it and they were going to make money off it. So they didn't really care what effort went into anything about it. I almost would appreciate it more if these were all just done as gateway horror movies you know something to bring in a a younger audience because that's at some points in the series it definitely feels that way i think the nun is definitely a good like starter horror movie annabelle creation also if they leaned into that more and more but just gave us really good stories like you you, what's your excuse when i can go back and rewatch a couple goosebumps episodes and sure the the acting isn't great But if I can rewatch a couple Goosebumps episodes and episodes of Are You Afraid of the Dark and really enjoy them and go, wow, that was really good, what's your excuse? It's the difference between four solid Goosebumps stories being a half an hour each versus one Conjuring franchise film at two hours. Yeah. Do you guys want to skip to The Conjuring now? I would say skip. That's the next one on the list. Yeah, we'll step to The Conjuring. It's not that far. Okay, so actual story behind The Conjuring. Yay! Uh, the Warrens turned up to a former funeral home and declared that it was haunted by demons. Their accounts, no one else's, 
What turned? <laughs> yeah, they were just like, oh, something's nasty in here. Yeah, and pretty, like, pretty much. They did. She just right. turned up and decided that it was haunted. Their accounts, no one else's, were turned into stories and movies. An author who tried to investigate the real story from the family who lived there said that the family involved, which was going through some serious problems like alcoholism and drug addiction, couldn't keep their story straight and got really frustrated. And the writer said that they had to give up on writing the book because they couldn't get any facts out of anything. But one of the people involved said when it came to Lorraine Warren, if she told me the sun would come up tomorrow morning, I'd still get a second opinion. Um, so basically, no one trusted these people. But basically, that was the whole story. They turned up at the property, declared it was haunted, and then tried to sell the story. Yeah, and the the family considered the Warrens to be a nuisance. Yeah, a lot of these cases, I- the Warrens just turned up and were like, "Your house yeah, is haunted." Up, they're like, "Oh, yeah. yeah, oh, we we gotta we gotta start doing exorcisms in here." And the dad, Roger, I think his name was, mm-hmm. is like, you have to get out of my house. <laughs> Leave my family alone. <laughs> and they're like, no, we have to help you. And I they're, I don't know if they're trying to do it to make themselves more They're credible, just professional but- con artists. More and more of these stories are that they were professional con artists. People think, like, oh, they must have just been like some weirdos who really just thought that they were helping out. No, they're professional con artists. That's all they were. On top of that, when you think about the circumstances of when they sort of rose to fame, like we're talking like 60s, 70s, satanic panic. And I know I talk about this era of time a lot on the podcast, but it's fascinating to see what America went through during that time and how big like this whole religious endeavor was. It was televised. It was everywhere. You have this rise in satanic panic and the cults and like the Manson cult. So of course... To get back in the people's good graces, when people like the Warrens are starting to get publicity, for the church to make Ed the, like, only non-church-related exorcist, that's going to garner a lot of attention. That's going to start looking good for the church. And the more places that they can stick their nose in, and the more publicity that they can get, the better it looks for the church in the middle of this whole satanic panic. Just like we keep trying to shoehorn Annabelle into a movie... The Warrens kept trying to shoehorn themselves into people's lives. If you look at the story, like we were saying before, of Amityville, it, when you when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, Ronnie DeFeo was just a piece of trash, and you know he wound mm-hmm. up getting what he deserved. You know, going going to jail, rightfully so. But the the Warrens ended up kind of sinking their claws into the Lutzes, influencing them, and leading to the story be- being written and becoming, you know, what everyone kind of hears about now and what everyone knows at the surface level of what Amityville is. And it's the same thing with any of these other cases. The Warrens were not wanted nor needed there, but <laughs> they so badly wanted to make a name for themselves. They were like, uh, let's say like a YouTuber convinced he's a boxer uh, and saying, listen, <laughs> I'm going to fight Mike Tyson. <laughs> the fascinating thing is the warrens themselves as actual people were trash people Mm -hmm. they were nuisances but movie warrens they did a good job of of crafting these people that were like oh cool at least in the first conjuring where you're like oh i like these people they're trying to do the right thing. Ed is coming in and helping to fix this old Chevy and he's doing repairs in the household. I think he does the same thing in the second movie as well. You feel like there's a lot of heart there and it's so difficult to 
separate the two when you're like, oh, Ed, when they're like, all right, we're going to head back home. I think at the end of the first or second one, I'm like, yep, where you've got like your 16 year old, you know, third wife that you've got in the household (laughs) now (laughs) that you're grooming. It's awful. It is difficult to separate them, but I wanted to try and actively separate them so that I could just base it off the movies. That's where, like, because, what was it, uh, Lorraine passed away the most recently, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. That's where I wonder how much influence they had and their estate had on the franchise, because I also know that in the beginning, they were all ready to just, like, sell their stories when the first Conjuring movie came out. And then when they started to see it pick up and make money, I think they tried to sue production to get more. So I don't think that they're actively involved in this sort of self-glorification, but I don't know if that's like a contractual thing, because as the movies start to go on, not to jump ahead to two, but when we get to that, there are some key points where it almost looks like the writers and director are like, "Mm, these people are full of shit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I loved that. I I think they had more control in The Conjuring than anything else. I think they were like, oh, someone's making a movie of us and we're going to make some money. Cool. And I don't think they, after selling those rights, realized how the whole franchise was going to keep using them. And as soon as they were, they couldn't really touch them and they could say what they wanted, they started sort of slipping in, like, by the way, the Warrens are I'm not allowed to say that, am I? Well, you can say (sighs) I mean, I can't. I'll bleep mine out. (laughs) Can you actually bleep that out? Because a lot of people are offended by it. Because here, like, it's a free word. But... I know in America, a lot of people are really offended by that word, so I'm very sorry. But also, they sold the rights to tell stories about their daughter, which by itself is a really, really shitty thing to do. But they made the daughter look awesome. My problem with (laughs) Ed and Lorraine is, like, the actors separately give incredible performances. Like, what's the name of the actress that plays Lorraine? Vera Farmiga. She's just incredible in everything that she touches. In Bates Motel, she was just insane. Like, I love her. But as character, I don't understand this whole, like, people idolizing them as a couple after watching The Conjuring. Because, I mean, one, in real life, they're, they're, they're horrible. But two, in the movie, the actors have a real hard time having any chemistry. Like, I just don't feel any warmth from them, uh, to, like, together. It would help if Patrick Wilson reacted to anything. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't have <laughs> any emotion apart from, I'm angry. It, that's my what yeah, it was that's, so that's distracting <laughs> that i was like oh man have i ever seen anything i like this guy in and then i remembered i love him in insidious hot take i know oh, but <laughs> that's the same movie as the conjuring so okay well that's a whole james wan issue we're gonna have to talk about yeah <laughs> he like a mix the movie. amount of people i said oh we're recording an episode on the conjuring and they were like oh i couldn't watch it because of the dark mall demon and i'm like that was insidious and they're like oh <laughs> they looked like the same movie i've had that from four separate people who know nothing about each other have said oh i didn't like the dark mall thing and i'm like yeah that's a different movie but i can see where you get confused <laughs> make up a side i really like insidious but whatever <laughs> <laughs> but yeah the 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 on-screen Warrens, as forced as it is, they aren't the main characters of the first movie. Like I was saying before, it's it's great to see Lily Taylor's great in The Conjuring. And, and the reason why it's such a disappointment to see this series go where it's gone is because the first one, I, I felt, is like still so good. I went into the rewatch this time going, all right, do I really 
again, <laughs> do I really love The Conjuring? Or is it just because I saw it in the movie theater and I was like, oh, this is really <laughs> a really pretty looking horror movie. It's great. There are scenes where if this was their ninth installment or what are they at now? An eighth installment? Eighth. Their yeah, latest the one. third one is the eighth. So if this was the eighth installment, we wouldn't have gotten scenes like the initial Lorraine looking into the music box. It's super, super tense and nothing happens at all. Until I think later on in the movie, that would have been two seconds of a buildup, everything goes silent, jump scare, leading to literally nothing. There are so many scenes in that movie that, I mean, my notes are filled with them, that are done so pa- with, with such patience to build that tension to make it feel like someone really cared about what they were crafting. Even down to what you're saying about the jump scares, which have become a staple of the Conjuring films, Mm -hmm. there are obviously quite a few jump scares in this movie, Mm -hmm. but something like the one where uh, the daughters are saying that there's somebody behind the door, that was the first one that I noticed that broke a very traditional means of creating jump scare intention that we've seen in horror for decades. Mm-hmm. It, I've gotten it so down to a science that when I was introducing my youngest brother to horror, I was like, here's a fun trick. It's cut, 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 hold your breath for 10 seconds, and then the jump scare comes. And if you see any tension building scenario coming up like that, where it's like character, what they're looking at, back to the character, 10 seconds, you'll get your jump scare. Mm-hmm. That's been a system for, for the last couple decades. And the scene behind the door, I was waiting for it. I was like, okay, we're doing it. Cut, cut, cut. Oh, we're cutting again. Oh, we're going to cut again. I don't know when this jump scare is coming. It came, but it actually caught me off guard. Not that I think a jump scare is a viable means of scaring somebody, but they definitely well-deserve tension there. Yeah, they built the tension. And it's also the jump scare doesn't release the tension. It's the best way to do a jump scare where it's the initiation of the terror that is that is coming. As soon as that door shuts, it's the screaming from the two sisters, it's the family panicking and trying to get in there, and they're just screaming their heads off about, you know, there was someone behind the door, there was someone behind the door. That's great. It's effective because you're giving us that tension and you're hitting us with the jump scare, but now it's, it's ramping things up that much more. I, I think another great couple scenes, the hide and clap scenes, were awesome. Yes. Oh, and oh, before I forget, Joseph Bashara, who does the music in, I believe the the first and second central Conjuring movies. I don't know if he did the third. I forgot to look. He is phenomenal. Not just in the composition, not just in the the, the score of the movie, and him peppering in a couple little pop tunes here and there. But he is great as Bathsheba. And I believe he also plays the lipstick demon in Insidious. He is just phenomenal. He's, a great, you know, we're so used to seeing like Doug Jones and Javier Botet as like the long boy kind of demons that <laughs> to see him in this makeup made up as an older woman, like a decaying looking witch is great. Very back to the Ted Raimi and the Shemps. Mm-hmm. I definitely understand why people like The Conjuring. Personally, it's it's just not for me. If if the Warrens honestly weren't part of it, I feel like it would be a much more interesting story because it would have just been interesting to see how it plays out 
without people telling the experts telling them everything Mm -hmm. as they're going along and i think that's what bothered me i was like i just want them to figure it out by themselves and to discover what's going on but i could definitely can't call it a bad film but it's, it's just i can't jump on board with any of these maybe if i'd never heard of the conjuring franchise and had just watched it when it came out like everyone else i might have enjoyed it more but i think knowing all this and also watching these other movies it definitely made it look fantastic in comparison to the other movies i had to watch before this because every time every time we watched a movie i was like that one's my least favorite oh no this one's my least favorite and we got to the conjuring and i was like okay right this this is probably the best one so far even just to take what you're saying and what john was saying before about how the characters are developed in the first conjuring movie you're given enough reason to care about the family you're you get their dynamic you get who they are to each other you get the importance of each member of this family even without really knowing too much about who they are it's their relationships to each other and that's super important because you see that like this is a pretty ride or die family they're gonna go straight through the gates of hell for each other and we see that throughout as they're actively making these choices when trouble arises but when the warrens come in it takes away from what we're relating to we know as much as the family does so we are worried for the family we know that there is a threat to the family as soon as the warrens come in as these experts there's no threat level anymore they come off as smarter than whatever we're up against they come up as always having the upper hand so any tension that builds after the warrens are introduced is immediately squashed by some sort of we know better or we're doing better there's no risk anymore there's no true danger to the family it's it's a big part of what makes the possession scene in that so lacking when they're doing the exorcism there's a reason that they cut to whatever uh lorraine went through when doing the last exorcism because they know that this is not important they've lost everything to this exorcism what's important is the character dynamic and it's not ed and lorraine's dynamic unfortunately that's not the important thing here that's not what we care about so cutting away from that is just distracting and demeaning to the actual exorcism taking place it takes away from the family it takes away from the importance of yes my daughter is in the walls i'm gonna go rescue her and fight this demon like no you're just distracting me from the struggle that this mother is going through yeah and when the when the warrens show up at I don't know if the intent is to create some levity to the situation, but they almost go like way overboard where they run in with this energy of like, uh, you know, ripping off your breakaway pants to get on the basketball court. <laughs> where it's just like, all right, Warrens are here. Let's fucking do this shit. Demon, demon. And they just like, it loses every bit of empathy that I, that I have for these characters. And I'm just like, all right, well, I could just sit back and watch the Warrens fuck around in this house for the next, oh, hour? Holy shit, there's still an hour left of this movie? Great, let's go. But I do agree with John. I do, this is my favorite one of The Conjurings. I like the makeup. I like the the Bathsheba design. Some of the the scares that aren't even really scares, like that one thing that they keep using, like in all the trailers where like the sheet flies off when she's doing the laundry <laughs> and then it like falls onto the silhouette. I thought that was fucking awesome. My biggest, and I guess like, most like righteous gripe about this is that having it be like completely devalued the impact of the Salem witch trials where I think like 20, 25 innocent people and two dogs were killed 
because of like a mass hysteria bullshit thing and people using it to gain power and whatnot. And then having this movie come and say like, yes, awful, but what if, huh? It was awful. In England style, the witch trials. <laughs> uh, we had a really insane king who wrote a book and told everyone the signs of witches, and yeah, then we passed it on hammer. to America. <laughs> oh, but also one 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 really big thing that people don't understand in Salem witch trials: no witch was burnt in America. That only happened in Europe. Uh, all of your witches were hung. Just Only some of them were hung. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and no witches were hanged because they were all innocent people. And yeah. to have this movie come and say like, hey, w- what if the those innocent people that died were actually witches and actually guilty? And I was like, um, that was like a really serious tragedy that we had. Let's like let it be something else. Let it be one shitty person that did a shitty thing and have it be her fault rather than like, oh, I am the ancestor of an actual witch. Like, oh, we got one, you know, 400 years ago or whatever. I mean, it's not the first horror film to be like, yeah, there were real witches in Salem. Even Salem is like, oh yeah, there's real witches in Salem. Like, it's not even that. Like, they use like an actual, actual, yeah, an actual name, a person that could have relatives today. And I like, like, if somebody came up to me and was like, oh yo, dude, I heard your great 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 grandmother was an actual witch. They made a whole <laughs> movie about it. I did really like this movie. <laughs> to to discuss the highlights and the weakest points, yeah, um, a lot of stupid choices are made in this movie. <laughs> stupid. So so Drew. The Warren's assistant, I love like their Drew. audiovisual guy. That's just James Wan self insert OC. Like, yeah. it's I don't great. mind it. It is one of the better parts of the franchise. But, yeah, but the movie's the weakest. Once we're going through that investigation, like the like Doza said, the um the tearaway pants where they just come in as the experts. That's where the movie starts to drag a bit, and I'm like, man, they could have cut this all out and just made it a sexy 90 minutes, and we would have been, you know, still all good for it. Especially um, because it's just almost shot for shot poltergeist. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. A good movie. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> We've done this dance before, and it was fun the first time. <laughs> <laughs> all I could think of during the three stages of possession scene where Lily Taylor's sitting in the uh, uh, symposium lecture room was the scene from Young Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> My grandfather's work was doo-doo. <laughs> it's, it's all I could think of, um, which was fantastic. So that's definitely a highlight for me. <laughs> to go back to the aesthetic so the of the highlight movie. is the parody. Okay. <laughs> I think the biggest highlight visually was the use of just the long zoom. Oh god, I love that so much. Just that's and and nothing says you're watching a 70s horror like <laughs> panning out to somebody in the distance and then just having someone like run into the foreground you're going from that long mid shot just zooming way in. It's so good. It's so visually satisfying and you're like, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm totally set in the time." The 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 set design, the costumes, the you know just everything the props it's all great but when you get that zoom you're like yeah this is <laughs> this is are. poltergeist or this is you know this is um amityville this is mm-hmm. rosemary's baby they do the same thing in house of the devil and i fucking love it <laughs> yeah i they definitely captured the essence of the era for each of these and i think 
as much as like, yes, that's a directorial choice. Like there's a reason that there is a standard to these. And I think that's where I have to give James Wan credit where credit is due. He's a phenomenal producer. You can tell me you hate James Wan, but once you look at his roster, you're going to realize there's two or three things on there that you do love. He's had his hands in everything, and he knows how to put a team together and an aesthetic together. And I think that there's definitely something to be said about that for the Conjuring franchise, where like even though all the stories are so ham-fisted, the aesthetic and the directorial choices remain the same. And I, I kind of want to touch on that when we get to La Llorona, because Oof. different director, but it was his first feature film directorial debut and managed to capture the exact... I wouldn't have known it was a different director if I wasn't looking at the credits. That's how much uh, he emulated what the Conjuring franchise is. I think the problem is that, like, apart from the performances, the things that we've been complimenting about the movies are the things that they've ripped from the movies we're comparing them to. So, really, there's nothing original that has been put into this franchise that is their own creation. It's like, oh, yeah, we like this because it was like Rosemary's Baby. Oh, yeah, I like this because it was like the poltergeist. There's there's nothing that's like, I like this because it was original and I haven't seen that before and... I, f- I think that's what bothers me about all of it. It's just, it's been done. You're not giving me anything new, and yet you're getting making so much money out of this franchise when there are people <laughs> putting out original stuff and they're not getting a penny. I think that's a good way to look at the movie-going experience as a whole. Because like, when you think about it, there's only two real reasons that you sit down to watch a movie. You either want them to entertain you, or you want them to impress you. And the Conjuring franchise does neither. It succeeds at being a movie, but it doesn't present anything new to impress you, and it doesn't present anything wildly entertaining that we haven't seen a thousand times before. Jumping ahead from here, which movie do we have next in the timeline? Um, it would be Annabelle Comes Home, but do we need yeah. more than that? <laughs> I mean, Annabelle Come Home was a yeah, it was a Goosebumps episode. No one is threatened. That's another big thing. No one in these movies is ever actually threatened. No. Uh, mm-hmm. Say what you will about uh, Valak being like, oh, here's this tree stump. We, we knew nothing was going to happen. There's never a point where I'm like, oh, man, they're in some serious risk here. Something, Someone's going to die. Annabelle doesn't do anything apart from just look at people. Like, that, yeah. that that's her power. Is mm-hmm. She looks creepy and everyone runs. This is what the doll does. So yeah, that's Annabelle Comes Home. I, okay, so I like that you chose to refer to it as a Goosebumps episode. So just to kind of put everything together and make sense of it all, going back to The Conjuring, the first one, real quick, like, that one obviously got massive press. It was a phenomenon for the horror community. I went back and I looked at what movies came out the same year. No competition. There was no good horror coming out at that time. So of course... This is the thing that's going to get the most publicity and the most press. So I started looking into, obviously, James Wan, because I get into these headspaces where we're like, man, I don't like James Wan films. And then I remember, oh, shit, here's eight James Wan films that I really like. So I did the same thing for Gary Doberman, who is a writer-director of most of these. Here's what I discovered. So Gary Doberman wrote, obviously, for The Conjuring franchise but also wrote for part one and two of It. And with that context, when you think about the uh, flute player ghost in It, 
and the nun walking into the nun painting of The Conjuring 2, I think. Yeah, same thing. They're just ripping each other, ripping their own work. James Wan's Insidious, and then we see Insidious come through again with the Beyond or whatever they call it in any of these sort of spiritual sequences where like Lorraine is leaning into being a medium in this. So they're kind of just taking from their own rosters. On that note, Gary Doberman has an unproduced Are You Afraid of the Dark script. And I truly feel like Annabelle Comes Home was just him getting to live out this unproduced Are You Afraid of the Dark script using conjuring characters and a couple of new ones like the the dog and the bride. To be fair, I think Annabelle Comes Home was probably the most entertaining for me. Yes. Because because it was like a Goosebumps or an Are You Afraid of the Dark episode and I eat that shit up. Like, I love that stuff. But all I kept thinking was like, if this was a standalone movie and didn't involve this fucking doll, I would really enjoy this. It was a fun story. You cared about the characters for once. And... Yeah, yeah, they just, did a great job with the fun. daughter in this one. Yeah, definitely. The daughter and and the um, I forget her name, but the friend who actually is the only one who gets a character arc in the movie. Yeah, you yeah. know, trying to communicate with her dead dad and trying to get over the um, the guilt of having been behind the wheel during the accident where he died. That's all great. It's entertaining. It's definitely entertaining. And where it has a fault is because of the connection that they want to make with the rest of the conjuring universe and having to give us Annabelle and having to give us the, the Ram demon, it takes you out of it because you're going, wait a minute, they're stuck in the room with the most threatening spiritual objects ever. Like these objects possessed by demons. There should be some risk involved. The Sam, how do you make a samurai boring? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It just yells the where I, I mean, I love a werewolf. Just give me any werewolf. It was a really cool aesthetic, but the only thing that happens is the chicken dies. Kill Bob. Please kill Bob. Like, if you're going to do something like that, where you've been hyping up for uh, five movies at this point, just like, that things in this room must never be touched. They are forbidden objects. They are the most dangerous objects in the entire world. Go ham with it. Go fucking bonkers kill someone give me a risk stop being the avengers of horror movies <laughs> i think i i felt like they did a better job in like night at the museum of, of just being like <laughs> I was just, these I things was just are threatening <laughs> it's like um like oh my god i was just gonna compare it to fucking cabin in the woods where everything gets let loose and it goes fucking buck wild Mm -hmm. like if they had gone closer to that like this movie is already kind of silly to begin with either lean into it or go serious and they just kind of like danced in this middle ground where they just like teased a bunch of stuff it was little teasers like little aperitifs and you're just like "Mm, yum great but where is my meal especially when they take the moment to be like what did you touch? And then she says, everything. Like, And they go, all right, we'll deal with it. We, we just get this evil dead moment where like everything starts becoming active and like, okay, these are no more dangerous than the toys in Toy Story. They're just clacking and chiming everything and rattles. dinging. And- I was like, all right, here we go. Here we go. Here, here we go, right, <laughs> guys? Here- if you want to watch a good, uh, a movie that commits... Like, that's the problem with Annabelle Comes Home, that it doesn't commit. It stays in that middle mm-hmm. ground of, like, yeah. we want it to be scary, but we don't want it to be too scary. We want the objects to be threatening, but we don't want them to be too threatening. 
go watch the first Goosebumps movie. Yeah, exactly. Phenomenal. It's bonkers. It's fun. It knows what it's doing and it commits to the silliness while still giving you something that, you know, is, is scary and you feel some risk and there's people that you can attach yourself to. And it's adorable. I love that movie. I watched it two days ago. <laughs> the second one's not bad either. Hmm? The second one's I great. love yeah. the sequel. That's one of my go-to Halloween movies now. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Second one's Maybe great. Maybe I'll save it then for it, this yeah, year. Yeah, do it. It's super fun. Well, it's yes, nice talking will, uh... about good movies for a second. Yeah, I know. I got, I got excited. I was like, all right, back to this. Just touching back on what John was saying also sure. uh, about the best friend in this. This is another instance of the Conjuring franchise not knowing who its protagonist is. Again, we were focused on a Warren. We're focused on the daughter. Uh, I feel bad. I can't remember her name. Daughter, I thought it was. <laughs> I think it's Judy. Daughter Judy. of mine. Judy. 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 Uh, even like John was saying, the, the friend gets the full character arc. And we have this instant where she's the one trapped in the room with everybody. But because... Judy is trapped with Annabelle, and Annabelle is the most important thing in the Conjuring franchise. That's what we're focusing on. They should have given a spooky Warren room. That would have been fun. I don't know why they had to latch on to Annabelle. I, I liked the the Madness 10 Seconds Ahead TV. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And who was phone? Yeah. I was like, okay, yeah. we're going to get some real <laughs> madness in here, and things are going to get, like you said, those wild. And then they didn't. It was... A very tame Goosebumps episode. I would say, are you afraid of the dark? But Gary, you missed the mark there because are you afraid of the dark scared the shit out of me as a kid. (laughs) That's why I can't swim in the deep end of pools. That's why I can't swim at all. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what they should have done? They should have just, instead of making any of these movies, they should have just gone to the Warrens Museum and done like a series where like every episode they do like a five minute like backstory on each of the objects and we're gonna lick this haunted piano today and see what happens (laughs) no but like oh that's just buzzfeed unsolved no but like i can see it in my in my head like there's just like this really cool like animated intro and then they go and they like and then like today's focus is on this piece and then they like zoom in and then suddenly we get like this little short of like a spooky backstory like goosebumps style episode on that haunted piece in the museum. I think that would have been way more interesting because no one gives yeah, a shit damn. about the people. And it has to be done with that, like, that particular YouTube voiceover voice. Yeah. Today, we're going to be looking at the <laughs> Warren's haunted room. <laughs> Heading over Number to the Clappy Monkey. <laughs> Nothing has ever been more terrifying. <laughs> I challenge you to create an object that's scarier than this one. <laughs> this is why John needs to do voiceover work. <laughs> oh Let's get God. Chris of La Llorona out of the way so I can insult this movie oh. to the depths of its being. God. Michael Chavez, I'm so sorry you're a competent director, I know. but oh, buddy, you're one of you, you're obviously one of my people with a last name like Chavez. At least I hope so. I hope I don't sound <laughs> ignorant or like that saying that. <laughs> I, I don't. Anna, what what backstory do you have? For I La I don't have a backstory for this one because there are it's not so the many. It, well, no, the the it's thing not is, the Warrens, right? there are so many different um, versions of this story, and I have no idea which is is the correct one or if there is a correct one. Yeah, they okay. are all fairly widely accepted as being canonical. Just any any story because it's more so told from a perspective of like here is the action, here's the consequence, 
and then La Llorona just is turned into our boogeyman in Hispanic and Latin culture. Our boogeyman, our candy, candy man, Freddy Krueger, pretty much anything that you, if you want your kid to go to bed on time, you know, you're going to get the look and anyone of Hispanic heritage <laughs> knows the look. Oh, and you know, Abuelita, no. <laughs> if it really comes to that point, you're gonna get ah, I, ahí viene la llorona, and it's like, and that's just uh, here comes the like, here yeah. comes the la llorona, and you're that's just like, terrifying. all right, I'm out, peace out. Yeah, I love it's that one of the, about it's us. like a cautionary tale. <laughs> I that, I love yeah. that. That see, that's that sounds scary. Like that What's, sounds like it would make an interesting story, which is why it could have, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it should have. It, yeah. What's it's... fantastic is that we have the story of, to sum up more or less all of the stories, all of her origins, La Llorona was a woman who sometimes is very wealthy. Sometimes she's actually the wife of an emperor. Uh, sometimes she is very, lives in poverty in, in the town. She ends up marrying a very rich man or a, an emperor, an eventual emperor. Through his wandering eye, his, his, you know, Unfortunately, he's he's one of those men, and he can't stay put. She winds up finding out about his infidelities, and she's so hurt because at this point now, she's been swept off her feet, and he's given her these two beautiful children, and she is so, not just enraged, but so hurt that she goes to the unthinkable uh, lengths. You know, she she actually takes her children out to the river and drowns them. And when she's done, she realizes what she's done and drowns herself. So her spirit is forever cursed to be longing for her children. And she's in search of her children. And that's what we're told when we're growing up. That she's going to come for us because she's so sad that she drowned her her kids. And she really, she didn't get what she wanted out of this. She's going to come and take us instead. So that's why you have to go to sleep by 830. <laughs> and yeah, in one of the one of the origins, her face turns into that of a horse. So yeah, not only is she and crying like, and weeping and searching for her children, she's also got the horse head. So that's a fascinating bit of folklore. And to have it turned into the nun, pero en español, is <laughs> so disappointing. I think, Anthony, you're right. Michael Chavez definitely took up the aesthetic of James Wan and keeps things consistent in that sense. But I also feel like Chavez has visual ADD. None of his shots are ever still. We're always constantly yeah. cut, cut, cut. His edits are so quick and everything is a zoom. Every single shot. And we see this in The Conjuring 3 as well. Everything is zooming in or panning one way or the other. Nothing ever stays still. Never so. static, never lingering, which and as I've talked about is like lingering horror is what you want. You want that sense of dread, but the fact that everything is constantly in motion never gives you enough time to settle into a scene. So even the jump scares don't work in this because you're not given any time to sit with the scenes that come before. You're not given that 10 second breath count in mm -hmm. a scene. And we're also, that's, that's our dead giveaway too, is that as soon as something does stand still, oh, here comes the jump scare, you yep. know, right away. Not only that, but to have a cast that's mostly non-Hispanic, <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm very like, I, I get that they want, they may want to appeal to a wider audience, but look at but Black why? Panther. Look at Black Panther. Mm. 
what an amazing cast we have and what a great reach that movie had. We could have had something like that with La Llorona and we didn't. And it's disappointing to have one of our only Hispanic actors be Tuco Salamanca. <laughs> you know, toy, 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 toy. He's like coming over here to just beat up La Llorona with his eggs. It's, <laughs> and I mean, it I, all, I love him. He's it a turns out he actor. had his own axe to grind the whole time. Yeah. Like, that I feel like when they were making this movie, they had an initial idea, and then anybody else who had an idea got their chance to showcase their idea. It's a mm-hmm. lot of what if, what if, what if, what if. And then the story is full of, I'm going to put twists and turns and air quotes here, but it's because there's no, there's no guiding force. There's no actual yes. concrete story being told. There is a good movie in there, and they robbed us of it. It's Patricia's story. Yes. The mother in the beginning, the mother who is hiding her children away in like almost the reverse of the Annabelle closet. Like she's got all the symbols to keep her away on the outside. Yep. And I think they say when they open up the closet, like just give us like two more hours or three more hours. I think that's all they needed in order to be free of the curse. And yeah. That's the movie I want to see. Give me that movie. Uh, as much as I brief- love Velma, like... I don't care. Yeah, I I love Linda Cardellini. Like, she's one of my favorites. But that's literally one of my notes is, I love her, but why is she the protagonist? It makes no sense for her to be in that movie as much as I love her. It just, yeah, it it doesn't make sense. It not only doesn't make sense for her to be in the movie as a performer, but her character, apart from being the social worker that is the cause of Patricia's problem, Mm -hmm. is nothing. There's yeah. no redemption. They don't really reconcile the whole, like, kids dealing with the loss of their father thing. They touch on it to try and give you character development, but it's not, there's no overarching point to them. Had she been the antagonist to Patricia's story and we had gotten that, that would have been a wildly different story. I would have been there for that to see the lengths that, again, just like the first Conjuring, to see what this mother goes through for her children rather than to see what somebody new dealing with this does as far as hiring uh, an exorcist to take care of it. And not for nothing, in a movie that's called The Curse of La Llorona and having a white savior character (laughs) is just like such a big no-no. Yeah, yeah. Like, I have, again, I love Linda Cardellini, but having her be the hero is like, that's not what this movie should have been. I I think it, it really suffers as... Uh, having Michael Chavez as a director, like, I'm sorry, but like, he has got a history of directing short films and having this be his first feature, I, I think he, he really sort of struggled to, to sort of make the transition. With what we got, uh, Anthony, I think you said, like, it feels like, uh, he was sort of strapped for ideas and anybody that had an idea, like, got it put in the movie. Cause, and John, to, to your point, like there, there is a good movie in there, and if we had gotten that from Michael Chavez as a short film, maybe would have maybe would have had a better movie. Yeah. But like when somebody comes to you and it's like, I want you to direct a movie in the Conjuring franchise, you're not exactly you know gonna put your hand up and be like, oh, hold up there. Yeah, you're not gonna say no. You're not I gonna just... say no. So I can't fault him for it. But it's what I can fault him for is yeah, just uh, you know making us feel like we were robbed of what was in there, what was truly in there, what could have been a really great movie. I just don't understand why this had to be part of the franchise at all. 
there's no real direct tie father franco franco was it who's the the priest from annabelle yeah is the only tie who and actually died no i'm not here for that <laughs> it's it's inconsequential this could have been its own movie and had it been its own movie with the freedom to be its own movie and not tied to this franchise and this franchise's aesthetic and this franchise's motifs that's where we could have had a good movie if there was any wiggle room to make something unique instead of throw it in the cookie cutter mold we're going to attach it to the franchise with a single line of dialogue and you actually saw the reaction to that in all the marketing it was marketed as you know the darkest chapter in the conjuring universe as every chapter is always said (laughs) to be and upon release they immediately retracted all that they're like no it's not actually part of the conjuring universe it is its own thing I don't know if maybe they were hoping to open up the door for other culturally appropriated properties to, (laughs) you know, to give us white. And honestly, like, I I don't know what it was, but yeah, you could have had it completely separated. If you want to watch a good movie having to deal with La Llorona, go watch La Llorona on Shudder. Yeah, buddy. It's a fantastic movie. Is it centered around solely the Weeping Woman? No. But the way that she is worked into the story is fascinating so we get a nice a well-contained movie go watch la llorona on shutter is it possible that linda carlini's character anna is annabelle from one of the annabelles probably maybe they probably they, they would they this? would probably they try and yeah <laughs> it made me not like my name for a second <laughs> oh no better <laughs> let's Oh. Let's do this, this, this last fucking movie. Let's let's let's. Oh, okay. Ooh, I'm gonna rip off my breakaway pants. <laughs> okay. Conjuring the devil made me do it. No. Anna, let's get this fucking background. We're we still have the conjuring, conjuring too. too. No, we're skipping it. It's no, bad. guys. Do not rob me of this moment. <laughs> oh, Anna. Okay. okay let's yes. Go. Please. Okay. Because I have a couple questions. <laughs> okay. I have a lot to say about this. Also. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so I have two actual stories here because they do touch on Amityville. So I just wanted to to touch on the Warrens' involvement in Amityville rather than the, the story of Amityville because we all know the basis of that. So basically, yeah, Warrens turned up, said it was demonic, same as, as usual. Sold a bunch of stories on it. After investigations, it was found that the story was refuted by eyewitnesses, investigations, and forensic evidence. And in 1970... 1970- oh, everybody except the Warrens? Yeah, hmm. Ooh. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, and in 1979, uh, the lawyer that was part of the case uh, stated oh, yeah. that him and Jay Anson the, and the occupants invented the story over bottles of wine to, to try and get Made him free. Yep. So anyway, that that's that. Now we're on to Enfield. Just to, just to really jump back in on, on Amityville, I love the inclusion of Stephen Kaplan's character in this because Stephen Kaplan yeah. was the first investigator to investigate Amityville wrote his, his book on it about how nothing had happened there. There was no spiritual significance. And the, and the reason he was brought in was because they needed that testimony. You guys had mentioned, Liana, you had said the falsified case. They needed the testimony that it was haunted. So they needed to bring in people like the Warrens. And just to give Kaplan that line of dialogue that Ed Warren has never seen a house he didn't think was haunted so uh, good uh, so true to yeah. everything we've learned about them and just the the epitome of the kaplan versus warren consistent battle they try to sue his estate every other year yeah just <laughs> for trying to insinuate that they're liars which they are okay so we're on to enfield 
for anyone who doesn't know where Enfield is, it's North London. It's about an hour away from where I am. London's a big place. Even though everyone seems to think that anyone else in London I must know because it's like they're 10 minutes away from me. To be fair, um, your entire <laughs> continent is smaller than Texas. Yeah, that's true. But most things are still okay. So en- Enfield is North London. It's about an hour away from here. So the real case. This is my favorite. The Warrens turned up uninvited to, We're to London and Why? immediately turned away because no one had a clue who they were and they were not welcome. That's the end of the Warrens' involvement in the Enfield case. They were are immediately me- turned away and had nothing to do with any of the rest of it. Are you telling me that Ed Warren did not actually give us a heartwarming rendition of Fool's <laughs> Russian? <laughs> Unfortunately not. Oh, also the two daughters, Janet and uh, Margaret Hodgson, uh, admitted to pranking the journalists. Janet was caught on camera as they show bending spoons, knocking on walls, and like hitting the wall with a broom while they were investigating. Nothing else was reported after that. The kids did a public apology. Nothing else happened after that. So the Warrens didn't run back in there and go, wait, no, even though it's proved that she did it on camera, there's something else wrong and save the day. The Warrens weren't there. The Warrens literally were not involved in this case at all. And the Enfield case went on for about a week. And it was just the kids going on camera like, yeah, this happened and this happened. And that was it. So, um, yeah. End, end of story that was so you're telling me she really did just jump from one bed to the other and she wasn't <laughs> levitating yeah because well the camera that they had set in there was set on a timer and so she <laughs> got wise to like oh every 15 seconds this takes a picture so three two one jump <gasps> and that's the picture that they got yep. <laughs> yep. so yeah. there was I, no crooked man with the crooked balls or whatever in the crooked <laughs> house story. the crooked children no it's like a you, so it's like a just a, like a book that like a children's book right the, so crooked, the crooked man, the crooked man just, yeah it's just a little book yeah it's like a fairy tale yeah the crooked man in the crooked house and the crooked it goes on for a while i can't remember <laughs> my favorite um the audio recordings of the initial haunting i think when when the um bureau or something like that gets moved at one point it like something gets knocked off the wall and you just hear the mom in the background of the recording going oh crumbs <laughs> yeah <laughs> one of my biggest gripes with this film apart from the fact that it's it was literally fabricated completely was that they didn't use any english actors apart from one of the boys <laughs> and he has one line all the rest of them Oh my god, okay, it might not be distracting for you guys, but for me, to watch people putting on fake English accents and then using the most generic English dialogue of what Americans think English people say is so fucking annoying. It's literally if I cast a film with all British actors putting on an American accent and all they said was lines from Clueless. That's how this was. It was, it, it just bothered me so much. And the accents were not consistent. They would slip into their Australian accents. One of them slipped into their American accent every now and then. It bothered me so much. The mum's Australian accent was so overpowering mm. that it just confused the hell out of me. And she was like, oh, if I miss out a few T's, I'll sound like I'm from London. And. Oi, bruv. So, so you're telling me <laughs> oh my God. that none of them was actually from England? John, I didn't know you were from England. Uh, oh, best believe, bruv. All right? 
I, I was gonna ask about the accents because I was like, yeah, why are no. they so like? Uh, oh jeez, I forget what she screams at one point. Not just the inconsistencies, but I was like, are they supposed to be from this region where it is very much the um, you know? No, I mean, I, I got I got a call from Janet's school that she was smoking again. But 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 like, I mean, I was like, this just sounds bad. Yeah, the thing is, they're supposed to be from North London. North London accent is a lot more pronounced than South London, where I'm from. Um, and I don't have a South London accent, which doesn't help the case, really. Like, South London, <laughs> like, is like South London. Anyway, they're from North London. At that time, kids would absolutely be getting in trouble for smoking in school, even if they were like five or six. <laughs> but yeah, the accents were just so bad. They were trying to aim for what would have been cor- the correct accent for North London in the time, but they were mixing it with Australian, which was um, a lot of Americans I speak to have no idea how to differentiate between Australian and English accents, which is really strange because one of them is spicier. <laughs> uh, but like, what? Did they not have English actors? Didn't they film it in London? I'm not. They must have filmed it in London because most of the streets are recognizable. Yeah. So unless Just they completely. Like- redid our streets then you um, can tell by the color grading that it was filmed in london <laughs> obviously why do they always do that color gra- but to be fair that is what color- what london looks like is that color grading so that makes sense so there you go that's why so you're telling me it wasn't actually the darkest chapter in the conjuring history it and was, it was only and it, it was, was only dark because one. they were told to leave yeah <laughs> i mean it, it's it's literally we have so many good haunting stories here obviously that wasn't one of them, so I, I just don't it's the understand. Most popular, right? Like it, it was one of the no, most sensationalized. No, a, a lot of people here didn't even know about the Enfield haunting because, as I said, it lasted a week. It was in the media no. because it was exciting at the time, but because it was instantly refuted with the girls having to go on air and being like, "Yeah, sorry, we lied," then it was just like, "Oh wow, look at this big prank that these guys pulled," and that's how it's sort of known. Is oh, that was a fun <laughs> prank that someone pulled. I think, again, it's just the sheer amount of media coverage that it received at the time. Yeah. As much as it only lasted a week, it dominated papers and news channels for that week, which, you know, again, coming off the heels of something like Amityville or something during this satanic panic era where we're covering everything in our media nonstop to get a taste of that over there is where that enticing factor comes in. And the fact that, like, The Warrens did, and I have a note about this, leave their daughter behind to go and chase this ghost. (laughs) There's definitely a level of intrigue there. It also shows a lot about who the the Warrens really were, this whole case, like in real life. They were the sort of people who were so money and fame hungry that they would leave their daughter, go to London uninvited, get turned away and still try and sell the story, even though they weren't there. Well, I think also like a part of them felt like they were trying to do the right thing where they thought that they were like God's messengers here to save the heathens from from these these dark and terrible entities. And it's like uh, they were chastising the the people like the, the real life people in the original conjuring for not being members of the church. And it's like, that's why this is happening to you because you're fucking heathens. And it's like, whoa, get out of here. <laughs> And just like time and time again, they were like, oh, these aren't people of God. That's why they're being haunted. And it's our job to be hired to help them. <laughs> yeah, especially coming to England, which is like kind of godless country. Then they were probably like running to everyone's doors, trying to save them. 
Um, hey, are you haunted? Hey, are you ha- no, not even. <laughs> hey, you're haunted. Give me money. Hey, you're haunted. Give me money. Okay, everywhere uh, here so- is probably haunted. To be fair. Okay. Either I'd... everything is haunted or nothing is haunted, but the Warrens had no business no. being anywhere. <laughs> Pretty much. This movie so, also breaks away from the beautiful aesthetic that gets created in the first one. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. Again, the editing is much more... Oh, I'm sorry, Doza. <laughs> the editing is much more kinetic, and it, it's it, and then we get the introduction of the quick jump scares. Not only that, but then we get the unnecessary ghosts being added. We get the Crooked Man, which, sure, he looks cool, but... What did, what did he add? Like, I don't want a movie with him because he was in the movie for all the three seconds anyway. Especially because, according to this, the Crooked Man was just a disguise or an illusion created by the current ghost. Mm-hmm. So, like, why give it its own story if it's not a separate entity? Yep. Also, why use that CGI on it? Like, that oh, CGI yeah. was so bad. I can't find it anymore, but I'm pretty sure that they built an actual, like... There is a physical crooked man, whether it's prosthetics or just, like, costume pieces that were used to, like, placehold and then be layered over in CG, but it's so heavily layered. If there's anything legitimate or prosthetic about it, it it doesn't exist anymore. It's unrecognizable, and it's not blended well. Like, the whole him walking through the door in the moonlight thing... The shading on that is so wrong, he just looks like he's not actually there. Yeah, how are you going to tell me you're going to have Javier Potet in costume, on your set, and then just cover him in CGI completely? So different than, I always go back to this with Crimson Peak, but Crimson Peak did it right. You do the physical, and then you layer the CG to do the things that the physical can't. This totally took away from anything that the physical could do, anything that we've seen physical do a thousand times before. I also put in my notes that um, obviously every film has the spinning crosses, but this one, they gave us a whole room full of spinning crosses just to make sure that we knew something real bad was going to happen. They got to up the ante. They doubled the amount of crosses for every film. And, <laughs> they did, you know, yeah. There was more the in Conjuring 3. Later. I just oh, imagined Lord. like a Tommy Lee-style drum cage with spinning crosses. <laughs> While yeah. Dave Grohl as the devil is playing the drums. <laughs> <laughs> that fucking rips. But that's just like another thing where it's like, these are horror movies for non-horror fans. Mm-hmm. These are the these are meant to be blockbuster movies for people to go out and see like, oh, uh, when did these come out? Uh, summer, I think. Yeah, June. Yeah, yeah, these are largely summer releases where like a bunch of kids get together. and It's like, oh, let's go watch the new Conjuring movie. And oh my god, that's my impression of what a kid is supposed to sound like. Holy shit! I'm so far removed from youth. Oh no, I'm old. Um, But it's like if like an everyday film goer is watching this, or like you know, oh if somebody like overtly religious is watching this, that's one of those things where it's like, oh, I'll have me crossing myself sitting in my seat watching all those crosses spin. But for but it's it's just generic at this point. For, for you know fans of horror in general like things another movie of things we've seen it's like John in was this saying, franchise if this had if these had all just been gateway films and didn't try and become this like phenomenon of the horror genre fine because they're they're not bad films technically speaking they're not great stories but they're not bad pieces of filmmaking if they were just gateway films and this was just like, yeah, like, you know, we're just here for the blockbuster and for the the non-horror fans, 
that makes sense. But the fact that it's just trying to snake its way into the actual grand cosmos of horror, it's not working. Especially yeah, like, when we got, get to The Devil Made Me Do It. For sure. I would love to be able to... I. Oh, we should make Evan watch these and see what happens. He'll probably be exploded. <laughs> I'm going to have to um, eat an entire salad just because he watched these. I'm suffering for The Conjuring three times then. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, I, wa- I want to get an, an opinion of somebody that isn't a horror fan about this movie. Because they, they definitely feel like, like this one in particular is so not for us. It's It definitely is leaning much more in into the silly and, and into the more, it's it's very jump scare reliant. And like that is not why I want to watch a horror movie. I don't want something to go boom. Well, it's like if you know how to play an instrument, and someone goes, "Oh, can you play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star?" And you're like, "Uh, yeah, sure." It, that, that's <laughs> yeah, kind I'll of fucking do it. It's gonna you know, rock. This is the sort of movie that it, you have to, I suppose, learn before you go into something. But if you're already a seasoned musician, then you don't want to step backwards and play like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, especially if. The person who wrote Twinkle Twinkle Little Star is like, uh, this is the best song that you'll ever hear in the world. And no one can <laughs> refute that. that. That's basically what it is. I think even just to emphasize Valak in this one, the nun, because I don't think we've said the nun's name this whole time. This isn't even for fans of The Conjuring because they've built up this nun so much. And then as soon as Lorraine remembers its name all it takes is the name to banish this thing you don't think that the nuns in the abbey with all of their their lore and their their context could have figured that out as a whole but only lorraine could figure it out after it's been attached to her for no other reason than she helped exercise it the first time wasn't even the one that exercised it but helped exercise it there's no reason to put valak in this other than to try and give lorraine some form of character development try and make her and ed important and their dynamic and their relationship is so nothing in this where it's like oh maybe we'll give up ghost hunting psych (laughs) but no there's we just we get Two minutes of Valak as like the big, big bad. And then she just recites its name. It turns into a whole nother demon and becomes powerless. And again, hindsight being 2020, the nun should not have been as supremely powerful as we saw in the nun if this was the payoff. Yeah, if it was just, a, a, you know, the whole of the nun wouldn't happened if someone had just known their name. And it could have been like, oh, hey, Valak. And they'd be like, oh, wait. What? <laughs> but not even not even just that. Like, Valak in The Nun is able to create full-on illusionary worlds, illusionary people, able to bend actual physics by putting a man in the earth. That wasn't an illusion. That happened. They had to dig him out. The bells actually chimed. Like, actual physics are being bent here and this could be a real threat so for two other movies for this to be nothing and then banished with only a name is a waste yeah and i think taisa formiga hits her with the uh the uno reverse card and spits into (laughs) her mouth and then gets rid of her (laughs) that would definitely get rid of (laughs) me but look this is another one of those movies i think they like they sort of figured it out maybe by the end of this one where it's if they had just like let the story be the story and have the warrens have no involvement like they do with annabelle creation 
and just let it be about this experience, that would have been a far different and in my own personal opinion, a far better movie because it's that same thing where it's like I would love to see the the struggle and have these characters grow rather than like, again, Warren's here. Let's fucking do this thing. And it just like waters everything down from from that point on. I don't know. I'm out of stuff to say about the the Conjuring too. <laughs> um. Okay. So the Conjuring three, the actual story. <laughs> so the beginning of the story where the kid David is supposedly possessed and the Warrens are present at his exorcism. Um. That's that's the account of of the true story, and also that uh, Arnie Johnson coerced the demon to taking him instead, and which is when he apparently started acting strange. So basically what happened is the first thing that anyone knew of Arnie Johnson is that he uh, stabbed his landlord repeatedly. Um, so he went to court and the Warrens immediately came after that and claimed that he is possessed and that's why he stabbed the landlord. So they launched a book and a film deal straight, straight away. And that was even before the trial even began. They'd already sold the rights to this story of Arnie Johnson's possession. So here's what it get, where it gets really fun. Basically, the lawyer for the case uh, received calls from all over the world about what was being called the demon murder trial of Arnie Johnson. So he went to England to meet with lawyers that had been involved with two cases that were similar and planned to fly the exorcism specialists out, basically, for the trial to stand testament to like whether this could possibly be an actual like demon possession case but obviously the warrens heard that they wanted to get some exorcism specialists in to help with the trial that they were supposedly on the case for um and instead they threatened them with a subpoena and told the priests if they didn't cooperate with saying this is a possession case that they would be sued. So the Warrens didn't even want the church to to be involved. So the court was obviously provided with no evidence that Arnie Johnson was possessed and he was convicted of manslaughter. Lorraine was like, he levitated, I saw him. And it's like, (laughs) okay, can you show us the proof? Yeah, you record everything. You must have the proof. And she's like, no, we were, it doesn't, Yeah, we had it, but it's around here somewhere. (laughs) Um, The demon is an audiovisual genius and erased it. (laughs) yeah right he's magnetic so, magnetism. hang on all right um they the, just decoused everything the warrens and the johnson family um including arnie while he was in prison uh, received profits from the books and the media that obviously the warrens had put out there but after the warrens made more of a cut than the johnson family the johnson family eventually spoke out and said Basically, the Warrens had come to them and said, we can make you famous and we can get Arnie off trial and we can make this whole big thing that you're going to make lots of money off, uh, claiming that they would be millionaires and get their brother out of jail. So they were asked by the Warrens to make up the possession story, including the kid at the time, David, was meant to be coming up with this backstory of him being possessed. They made an audio recording where they sat around a table and pretended to act out a possession as evidence for the court. But after they realized that Arnie was was being convicted anyway, and that the Warrens were making more money than them, then the family came clean and said, the Warrens came to us and asked us to make up this case for profit. We thought it was going to get our brother off trial, but it didn't. So here's the real story. There's no possession. That's what happened. The Warrens were caught trying to, to con 
everyone into giving them money again, basically. And the craziest thing is, somehow, this is still the best adaptation of Haunting in Connecticut. They are based off the same case. I I tried watching Haunting in Connecticut, I think back when it came out, and it is just so badly paced <laughs> that they, they don't cover anything. At least this covered something as fictitious as most of it was. But man, this one went real hard on the satanic panic, the, the trial of witches, and the total fictitious element of like... I saw on TikTok somebody put it very eloquently. It's like somebody googled, what do witches do? And then put all of that into one movie. <laughs> so the movie, I think, failed... <laughs> you can just where, leave it where, there. It failed. <laughs> <laughs> where the movie failed to create something interesting was during the exorcism scene in the opening. If we had not seen Arnie get possessed after begging the demon to come into him, and then we leave it ambiguous, that could have been interesting. Because now we know that he's called for the demon. Take me, take me instead. Of course, they have to like try and steal off of the. Uh, the Exorcist. But, you know, fine, we get that scene, and had had we not gotten our answer right then and there that the demon did say, oh, okay, sure, no problem, then that would have made for an interesting movie, because now we're asking ourselves, is he actually possessed, or is he using yeah. that as an excuse, and now he's trying to tie this in and say, listen, it's because I, I was involved with an exorcism, you gotta believe me, I didn't stab my drunk landlord while we were both just completely plastered, um, it was actually the demon. And that's and where the Warrens' supposed importance comes into play, because instead of creating a mystery for the audience, they created a mystery for the Warrens. We're just watching them solve it. Yeah. It's like Nancy Drew with none of the tact. And yes, I know these movies are 98% marketing, but to have used this case, as sensationalized and as false as it was, to use the case as the center of your movie and then not give us any of it we get all of 15 minutes where the case is actually important to the story and the rest is just arnie in jail and arnie being possessed again and arnie seeing stuff and now that's as Ed far as lorraine the case goes are... the rest of it is just lorraine's story of basically exploring this on her own yeah. I, I whether or not ed actually had a stroke around that time doesn't fucking matter to me mm. there was no thematic reason to make that the crux of your story other than to remove him as a character for scenes that he couldn't be in and to just give the witch something to attack Lorraine with. Again, this movie falls victim to not understanding that we we don't want to see the Warrens. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care about what Ed and Lorraine are doing. Give me these characters to actually care about. You know, I would much rather have seen this movie go the route of something like Exorcism of Emily Rose, where they took possession and a court case and they mushed the two together. And psychology. And we got to second guess ourselves during... My God, I just blanked on the name and you just said it. <laughs> Exorcism <laughs> of Emily Rose. Thank you. Yeah. But yes, exactly. It's, it, it leaves us doubting ourselves, where this movie leaves gives us no opportunity to doubt ourselves. We're well, given you... the answer right off the bat. Even if we did doubt ourselves, I just don't... I can't imagine anyone caring enough about the characters in this one 
Where they would care. No, because they're written they're like, terribly. Yeah. yeah. It, they they basically wrote everyone else in this in five minutes and were like, yeah, well, we don't want anyone else to be interesting because we want everyone to be focused on the Warrens. And it's like, yeah. you've already bought the rights to these stories off the Warrens. Why are you still trying to make them important when the whole world knows that they're not important? And I don't think the whole world knows that. I think that's just us because there's definitely a big fan servicing of the Warrens all over the internet. You don't understand. It's like Joker and Harley. Like, why would you want that relationship? I, oh, oh, look, the tie and the skirt match all the time. That's not relationship Which- <laughs> goals, guys. No, that's props to wardrobe. <laughs> yeah, they made something interesting out of these characters by giving them a tie and skirt matching. But really, if that's your relationship goals, like, come on. You want to wear a matching shirt, like skirt and tie. Yeah, like... it's going to appeal to people on the base level, and <sighs> yeah. that's like with this entire series. We, it's basically at the end of watching all of these, I wanted to ask myself, like, am I a curmudgeon? Am I just a grumpy old horror man? Can I not get enjoyment out of these movies? And no, I I can if the movies had been constructed well. Yeah, because visually, yes, they're shot beautifully. The, the sets are stunning, costume, character design, all that's great. But when it comes to the substance, not to throw in my accents again, but it's like Paul Hollywood. There's no structure. It's terrible. You give us nothing to latch onto at that point. Yeah. And I think we kind of got that advantage with most of these being a rewatch for us. Because I also came into it, it had been a while since I had seen any of the Conjuring movies. So I was like, okay, I'm going to give them a second chance. I want to have a reason to like these. And I'll be honest, I wasn't crazy about the first Conjuring movie when I saw it in theaters. I liked it more the second time around. I don't know if that's because I had all the other ones to compare it to backing it up, but I found more things that I could enjoy and excuse. Like I said, I can't feasibly say now that these are bad movies. They're not. For all intents and purposes, these are fine movies. They're not good movies. They're not great movies, but they are definitely movies. They serve a purpose to get butts and seats, and they're popcorn, popcorn horror. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think you need that. I think, at, at the very least, as a gateway, you do need that, but it does get upsetting when they're held up on this podium. It's when people are like, you know, this is the end-all, be-all of horror. Like, they have redefined the horror genre. Right. Yeah, no, or they had they finally movie. come into the horror genre and they can't find things like merit in The Exorcism and people are going around saying that The Conjuring is better and scarier than The Exorcist. It's yeah, just... have... Was it Insidious or was it one of The Conjuring movies that was named the number one scariest movie of all time? How? I think it was The Conjuring. What? I don't like, yeah, understand. The I don't agree. As much as I love the first one, it's tense. And how... There's a difference between something being scary and something being something being tense. I think the people that, that think that The Exorcist isn't scary are focusing, either haven't watched it, and they've just watched clips of it, or they're just like, oh, is a scary part meant to be her head spinning around? And it's like, no, the scary fucking part is meant to be that the priest is followed from his childhood upwards by this demon, and it possesses this girl just to get to him. That's fucking terrifying. And he's been, even before the demon possesses Reagan, it's been following this priest. Like, Come on, guys, that's fucking terrifying. Every day of his life, this demon has been waiting to get to him. 
to make him kill himself. Uh, yeah, but Valak followed the lady from the first exorcism, remember? <laughs> oh, I get it now. Parallels. <sighs> Parallelograms in horror. I, I have no... <laughs> that's what it feels like. <laughs> I have no problem with anyone saying that they like the Conjuring films. Good for you. That's, that's great that you found something enjoyable out of them. And that you like Thank them. You. you can like what you like. But then don't go and say that it's a fantastic horror movie and like oh i really love horror movies i love the conjuring and then that's literally all your basis is that that's what bothers me about this is let it be the gateway let it be the thing that causes you to seek out these fringe movies that are Mm -hmm. scarier that aren't getting theatrical releases that aren't being given the publicity of a multi-million dollar franchise but have these incredible unique stories characters and horrifying situations horrifying scenes let it be the thing that allows you to open your mind to the world of scary just to go back to the devil made me do it they try to make the antagonist sympathetic but there's nothing we don't learn about her until like the last half hour of the film She's not a sympathetic character. She's just a fanatic. She's the perfect antithesis to the Warrens because they're both religious fanatics on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Oh, man. Just to get into the fact that the Conjuring movies have no rules. Obviously, spoilers. But they talk about how this ritual needed the sacrifice of a child, a lover, and a holy person. So for all intents and purposes, when the quote-unquote demon, which they kind of throw away in the middle of the movie possesses arnie that shouldn't count anymore because arnie is supposedly over 18 functioning adult on his own and the brother i forget his name was supposed to be the sacrifice of the child so already that one's out the window this ritual should not work then for the lovers we get this backstory which again is arguably the more interesting story being told here but being told in snippets the flashback is the lovers and then she's trying to go after ed and lorraine as well so like are they trying to fill a void that's already been filled or is this just consequence and then she literally kills her father the priest who is a holy man who could have taken the place of i guess that's why she's going after ed at that point but all of these quote-unquote rules are so muddled there's no reason this ritual should work and in the end it doesn't and we get a quick comeuppance and it's to no credit of our protagonist it's to no credit to the story this is just something that would have happened i guess her time limit expired sorry because this line fucking gets me when they go to speak to the priest who has become a farmer the witch's father they ask why do satanists do such things and he tells them there's no asking why when it comes to satanists which tells us immediately that we're in for a story that has no bearings and no consequences and no substance because there is no why. We're not going to get a reason for this. We're not going to get an actual story. It's just two religious fanatics facing off against each other with all these casualties in the middle. These movies make religious people look like nuts, though. Which, <laughs> like, I, I, I'm, they're obviously not intended to make people, religious people, look like nuts. But anything about the satanic panic makes religious people look like nuts. But that's just it, because they, they do and they don't. Because the priest who appears in Annabelle and a couple other movies, 
he's not bad. He's not a bad character, and he's the most level-headed person we've dealt with. So, as far as, like, religious persons go, he's not a bad representation. It's the fanatic versus fanatic, which is what we had during the Satanic Panic. It was the church trying to retaliate against all the publicity going against them and towards all of these sort of free love religions and the uh, extremist family cults. Yeah, that's what I mean, though. Like, not all religious people are nuts. And they're making religious people look like nuts by showing us only the fanatic spectrum. And everyone's a Satanist if they don't believe in God. And like, I don't think that they are because, again, in The Conjuring 2, we do get that sort of snippet where it almost looks like the, the team is like, hey, yeah, these people are full of shit. But then they come back and give the Warrens their heroic moment because that's storytelling. The, the third one, Devil Made Me Do It, we totally lean full hard into fanatic versus fanatic. We're not trying to make the Warrens seem less legitimate. But I don't think that they're trying to preach anything. It doesn't seem like we're trying to be led onto either fanatic side. We're literally just given a story to watch unfold in Devil Makes Me Do It. Like, we're not being given characters to latch onto. They're just like, yep, y'all know the Warrens. Here they are again. Here we go again. And then, you know, this no rules of witchcraft witch coming in and being the antithesis to that. We're just, we're watching the story unfold. We don't have a mystery to solve. We don't have anything to piece together on our own it's just all spoon-fed to us scene by scene it's like the entire series itself a jumbled up mix of scenes and set pieces that lead to a jump scare at the end of it and we are not changed by by the end we've watched all eight of these movies I mean, and we pretty, are not changed by the end I, i'm pretty changed like i i just felt completely drained and I just wanted to watch cartoons because I felt like I could rely on them being good. I don't know. It took a lot out of me watching this many films that I just... I kept an open mind during all of these films. And it's draining, guys. So are we going to do another one of these after the next five movies come out? No. I feel like we have to. <laughs> I'm not going to like it, but I'm eight movies invested. You know, I'm not going to pay money to see them, of course. I absolutely will. Got to go to the theater so I can trick myself into liking it. Good them. luck. It's like, oh, I paid fun. sixteen dollars, so I I must like this movie. To be fair, I, when when we went to go and see Midsummer, then I paid to take a really good nap. So I might do that if you guys want to go and see The Conjuring. I'll come with and pay to take a nap. I hey man, I'm reinstating my movie pass soon, so. Maybe I won't have to have paid for it. I was so grateful that Devil Made Me Do It came out came out on HBO Max, so I could be up to the trend, and we can have this conversation and do this episode without having to spend the money that I spent on the original Conjuring Two and the Nun. Am I the only one here that didn't spend a dime on any of these? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna give you that on a technicality because I did pay money. To oh, rent you did a pay of one them. of them. I told you not to. <laughs> But I had to introduce them to you, and it was much more enjoyable watching them with you than watching them with people who were like, yeah, that was the greatest movie I've ever seen. And I'm like, no, you're wrong. It's okay to be wrong, but we're not going to have this conversation right here in the theater. I did feel really bad for you, though, because I, my running commentary during every single one of these films, like, I'm glad that we didn't record that, because I probably just would have insulted people a lot oh, more. Boy. But uh, yeah, I, I insisted on doing a running commentary basically for all of these films. So thank you, Anthony, for 
I want the Anna Rift tracks, please. <laughs> Release it. But even uh, just like John said, calling them like popcorn fodder, like going with a good group of people, going to see a movie with friends, like getting that cinematic experience. These are good for that if you're willing to talk over the movie and have a good time. If you're just trying to sit there and watch it and take it seriously, you're not going to have a great time. But if you're like ready to poke fun at all the asinine stuff, like, okay, Conjuring 1, when the father asks for a match in 1970 to go into the drafty cellar, and then the next scene wisens up and has an actual flashlight. (laughs) I can't sit quietly during that. That's fucking stupid. (laughs) It's 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 fucking funny. This episode of the Hauntsville Cryptcast is brought to you by Reanimated Apparel. Check them out at letsreanimate.rip to pick up some spooky shirts, hoodies, undies, you name it. And save 10% by using our code Hauntsville at checkout. That's letsreanimate.rip or at letsreanimate on Instagram. Now back to the episode. I think we've exhausted ourselves to the point of insanity. Mm-hmm. We started there, bro. <laughs> Three of us started there because this was our second time watching most of them. Poor Anna has finally joined us. Oh, why didn't we watch Drag Me to Hell instead? Because <laughs> it's good. It's a good movie. We weren't in a good movie <laughs> space. Oh, I think I'm going to watch Exorcist 3 tonight. Exorcist 3. I'm fucking dying. Exorcist, Exorcist 3. 3 is fantastic. Talking about this made me want to watch that. Yeah, Exorcist. Which is always a good sign when you're talking about other movies. <laughs> All of these being homages to other good horror movies should make you want to go and watch what they're pretty much based off of or ripped from, however you want to view it. Um, so yeah, go watch Exorcist 3, watch Pet Cemetery, watch Poltergeist, watch Rosemary's Baby. And go to London. And go to London. And you can hear actual British people speaking British. Or you can just listen to our <laughs> podcast. Show up unannounced, declare that their house is haunted, leave immediately. <laughs> Yeah, Sorry. someone turned up at my door and was like, your house is on it. I'm like, I, I know. It's a big old Victorian yes, house. Of course it fucking is. The church. <laughs> Let's get the hell out of here. All right. Y'all want your fear of the day? This one's an easy one. Hopefully you get it real fast. Is it Triskaidekaphobia? No. I think that was like our first one ever. I don't think so. Oh, well, then I just know it. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we need to do like a crash course on like the ones that I take for granted of people knowing like Triskaidekaphobia and agoraphobia and all that hydrophobia no we did hydrophobia right or we did hydropophobia you were going to and then i ruined it oh, the fear of stupid the fear of hydroplaning and philophobia <laughs> the fear of love <laughs> <laughs> so your fear of the day is emetophobia fear of spinning crosses no the fear of someone spitting in your mouth with tar yeah i literally it's- said that at the beginning of the episode i said no you well, lied kind to of. Anna. Because <laughs> it's, it's the fear of vomit. I oh, right. that's right. All okay. Like yes. Because it make a you vomit. <laughs> I get it. Is that still legal there? I, I don't know. No. I've never come into contact with it. They clearly have a heavy supply of it on hand for the Conjuring films. <laughs> yeah. did, they, did they actually make people throw up? No. It's possession oh. by baby it's bird. It's CG bullshit. <laughs> we couldn't Aww. even get real wet blood. <laughs> or or ooze, whatever it is, or Lyorona's tears. Was the pocket sand CG? Oh, the pocket sand. Oh. <laughs> what am I? What am I to believe now? <laughs> hey, Ed, what? <laughs> <laughs> Possessed? Not again. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! All right. Legal recommendations. 
Yeah, we've ripped this universe to shreds. Give us some good movies. <laughs> For once, my recommendation doesn't actually have anything to do with the Conjuring franchise because I felt like trying to compare a good movie to the Conjuring franchise is really... That's but what we did <laughs> all day. My recommendation is uh, the first good film that I watched after watching the uh, the Conjuring franchise called Boys from County Hell. came out last year. I can't remember. 2020? 2020. Yeah, that year. And it's, it's an Irish film which is it, it by itself interesting they don't try and change the dialect or tone of voice to fit an american audience which i very much appreciate and it's an original vampire story which is is my favorite thing in the world to find because making an original vampire story is so difficult it's like where making an original werewolf story like those are just such difficult ones to get anything new out of but they do a really good job and it has a lot of homage to like Irish lore in there as well. The, the character building's not great, but just ignore that. <laughs> it's great other than that. It, it's a fun watch. Again, yeah. if the aim is to entertain or impress, at least it entertains. Exactly, yeah. My recommendation is Thank you. Ouija, Origin of Evil. Yeah! Super enjoyable film. Similar to how I feel Annabelle Creation is one of the standouts of the Conjuring universe, this movie took what was the dumpster fire of Ouija and just improved on it immensely. It's directed by Mike Flanagan. We do get a little crossover with the Conjuring universe because Lulu Wilson is in this movie as well. And like Flanagan likes to do, Henry Thomas, who was the kid in E.T. and he's the dad in um, Hill House is in it. Doug Jones is also in it at some point. It's a great watch. It's really cool. He he adds like some um, film effects on there some film artifacts so you'll have hair on the screen at certain points and you do get a couple like little flares in there and stuff like that it's a fun watch it's definitely a fun watch yes it is kind of popcorn horror but it works because it leans into it i actually might re-watch my recommendation over the weekend too just because it's been a little while i would like everybody to check out hi i'm mary mary on youtube it is uh, a horror series uh, akin to sort of like Marble Hornets where it's released episodically and it chronicles this uh, girl's journey where she wakes up in what she believes to be her parents' house, but she can't leave the house and she is visited nightly by different entities. I think that are all also portrayed by the, the girl that is filming this and they're they're sort of haunting her and taunting her. And it's her experience and her interactions with each uh, with each of these that I feel like really drives this and kept me wanting to to know more. Like uh, you know, waiting like, oh, when's the next one gonna come out? Like, what's happening? I I love short YouTube horror. That's hi, I'm Mary Mary, all one word on YouTube. Love a good immersive horror, something we can watch as it unfolds. Yeah, and she's uh, I think she's also like she tweets about it, like her uh, her experience, like. Oh, you know, like I saw the shadow man today. And so like, in addition to these updates of her putting out full episodes are just these little tweets about like her current mental state and like what's going on, you know, day by day. That's like that Greg something that I recommended a while ago that just stopped abruptly. And where is the sky, which is another great one that has just continued over on TikTok. Yeah, they're doing a really good job with like, videos and stuff and making it really unnerving and just like little snippets into this person exploring this skyless apocalypse 
That's kind of like the sun vanished as well. The sun vanished was over oh, on. Twitter maybe that's what while. it is. Oh, this, yeah, the sun vanished. It's that it's was... definitely continued from Tumblr and Twitter. It's the same story. Yeah. Man, I really struggled with a recommendation for this one. I'm still struggling as we speak because I went straight from watching these to watching season four of Castlevania, which is more draining than the fucking vampires that are in it. Oh, buddy. Uh, and I've been substituting that and washing my brain out with JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. I think... I gotta like take a throwback for my recommendation. Not that it's a very far throwback, but I don't think I've recommended it before. If I have, I'm sorry. Uh, my brain is going to Uncle Peckerhead because that movie is a ton of fun. I feel like it really captures what uh, musician and tour life is like, all with the addition of this fun, mysterious demon character. Well, thank you guys for tuning into the Hauntsville Cryptcast. I'm Anthony. I'm Doza. I'm Anna. And I'm John. You can find me over at John Von Frankenstein on Instagram and over at Moonlight Mad Reviews. Happy hauntings. See you in hell. <laughs>